So <clears throat> tolerance is one of the highest cultural values that America has today. Uh, but Jesus in this passage specific, specifically says that he does not tolerate certain things. So how do we put that together as Christians in our society today? You know, tolerance in some areas of life is entirely appropriate. We live in a pluralistic society. There are many religions, faiths, uh, beliefs, parenting styles, different ways of doing things in the world. And to live in a pluralistic society, we have to learn to get along with people. We can't insist on our own way all the time. Uh, don't get me wrong, as Christians, we do need to insist, even in the public sphere, as much as we possibly can, that God's, God's ways would be followed. We, we have to insist on and advocate for justice and mercy, and we need to vote, and we need to try to get people elected in public places that can do good, that can follow what we believe is in accord with what God would want for our country. But I love Mark's prayer. We have to pray for our leaders at the end of the day we pray for them. At the end of the day, we have to submit to the laws that are here uh, as much as we possibly can according to our conscience. So there's a place for a Christian to be tolerant in our society today, to be a good neighbor, uh, to love one another. Um, but there are limits. There are limits to our tolerance. And in, in this passage, Jesus says there's a place for intolerance in the Christian life. How do I know that Jesus calls us to intolerance? Verse 20, Jesus says, but I have this against you. You tolerate this woman Jezebel, and then he goes on to explain more, and we'll get into what that means and what this woman called Jezebel was all about. But at the outset, I simply want to establish for you this basic fact that Jesus, in some cases, is an intolerant God. He is intolerant in certain ways. And you may be like, wait a minute, I mean, how does that work? Because I thought Jesus was loving. How can Jesus be I thought that if you love someone, you have to accept everything about them, whatever they bring to the table, you have to just fully accept that. That if you love someone, then that means you have to tolerate everything that's going on in their life. So, what do we do with that? Of course, Jesus is loving, so what is going on here? Well, for love to be real love, there also has to be truth. The church at Thyatira is commended for their love. Unlike the church at Ephesus, which was rebuked for not loving, this church at Thyatira is rebuked for losing the truth. They haven't lost their first love, but they've lost their first truth. And Jesus says to be my church, you have to have both. I am both loving and truthful. And for you to represent me to the world, you cannot, for the sake of love, sacrifice truth. Because truth needs to be there if love is actually going to be present. So in this passage, Jesus calls his church at Thyatira and us to a specific kind of intolerance. And so today we're going to look at the reason for our intolerance, then the focus of our intolerance, and then finally the reward for our intolerance. Let me pray as we get going, as this is a difficult, maybe a difficult concept for us to get down well uh, right now. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me and give us minds, give us hearts, uh, make us open to your word and your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. Lord, we thank you that 
It's not by might and not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And I pray that you would encourage us today through your word. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, the reason for our intolerance. And the reason for our intolerance is the character and the encouragement of Jesus. Both the character of Jesus and the encouragement of Jesus. So we'll start with his character. As in all of the other letters in Revelation, Jesus starts out with who he is. And the basis for what he's calling us to is not arbitrary, it's not willy-nilly, it's not random. It's who Jesus is in himself. And he's saying, you as my church need to represent me and my character in the way that you live. And he describes himself in a couple of really interesting ways. The first way he describes himself is as the son of God. Now, what's interesting about this is that there's only a couple of times in Scripture where Jesus calls himself the Son of God. Other people call Jesus the Son of God in a lot of different places, but there's only only in Revelation, in a couple of instances, does Jesus actually say, I am the Son of God. Now, why is he doing that? Well, in some ways, he's sort of throwing down. He's like, hey, look, this is who I am. I'm the Son of God. What authority do I have to tell you about these things? I'm the son of God. Okay? So that's the first thing. The second thing is there were a lot of other gods in Thyatira, like a lot of the other cities, right? In this time, there's a lot of Roman idols, Greek Greek, uh, idolatry that had been passed on and and integrated in. and, And so what you have here is you have this amalgamation, and you have Apollo who claimed to be Uh, really able to heal you from diseases, able to take care of your family. You had Zeus, who claimed to be the father of the gods. And then you have people going, the the way the society worked in Thyatira is they really believed in worship and in work. And they really believed in doing both of those to the best of their ability. Okay, that's one of our vows in the PCA. But the problem was, the reason why they worshipped was so that God would bless their work. That was the relationship. They work hard, they go to the temple, and the main reason why they're going to the temple is to ask for blessing on their work, on their family, prosperity, health, wealth, prosperity. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the son of God, not Apollo, not Zeus. I'm the only one who can really bless you, and in order for you to be blessed, you need to follow me And listen to me because I'm the son of God, okay? So then he goes on, he says, eyes of fire. I see with eyes of fire. Wow, what's going on there? Later on, Jesus will say that he is the one who searches minds and hearts. I've I've heard that phrase thrown a lot around a lot in the church. You know, Jesus searches minds and hearts. He does. He searches your heart with eyes of fire. He can see through and see what's going on in our lives, He searches our lives out through the lens of his personal holiness. Kevin DeYoung put it this way. He says, God wants you to be happy, but it's a happiness that is found on the far side of holiness, not on the near side. What he means by that is this. Yeah, God wants us to be happy, but if you're going to seek your happiness apart from God's holiness, if you're going to seek your happiness outside of God's holiness... And that's not something that God is just good with. Good with. If you're going to prioritize your own happiness over God's holiness, then that doesn't work with the character of God. So God has eyes of fire. He's looking out at the church. And then he says he has feet of bronze. So what's going on there? Well, the economy in Thyatira was filled with like the trade guilds, as, as they might call it. I don't usually use that terminology. Basically, you had a lot of entrepreneurs 
and they go out and they sell their, their wares. And so they had the, the, the dyes uh, and the clothing and the bronze, a lot of metalwork. And Thyatira was known worldwide for the bronze that was made there. And they prided themselves on having the purest and the finest bronze. And so Jesus is taking that and he's saying, I have the most fine and purified bronze feet. And what does that mean? He's saying that my stance is firm. I'm not going to change with the way that things change within culture. I'm God. I'm, I'm going to be firm. I'm going to be pure in the way that I look out at the world and what I expect from the church. So that's Jesus' character. He's saying, I'm going to call you to intolerance because of me, because it's who I am. And then he also says there's another reason that you should be intolerant in certain ways, which we'll get into, and that's his encouragement. I love this. So Jesus, what he does in this letter, and what he does in maybe, I think all the letters, I'll have to go back and look at it, but I'm pretty sure, is what he does is he builds like an encouragement sandwich, okay? What he does is at the beginning he says, hey, here's some really good things that are going on there. Hey, here's something you really might want to be aware of and work on. And hey, finish with, hey, you're doing some things really well. And that's what Jesus does. It's a really good way to approach human beings who tend to get on the defensive. And, and Jesus is serious. I mean, he's like, there's a lot of things that you're doing well, church in Thyatira. You're doing them well. You're, you're loving people really well. He rebuked the Ephesian church for losing their first love. And he's saying for them, you've loved me and you've loved people really well. And I want to commend you for that. He also commends them for their faith and their service. They don't just have right beliefs in a lot of ways. They also have right practice. They're actually seeking to follow God. They're, they're legitimately trying to live out the Christian life, and Jesus sees that. They've also gone through tribulation, he says, which means suffering. These people love God, and they're suffering for his name in a society that is very anti-God, and Jesus sees that, and he says that's great. And the final thing that I love that Jesus says here, he says, I see how your more recent works have exceeded the first. What this means is that Jesus sees when you're growing. He sees when you're making progress. He sees when, he sees when you're maturing. There's few things that are more discouraging in a relationship that you can be in with someone when you're trying so hard to grow. You're trying so hard to work on something and to change. And you either get no feedback or negative feedback. And it's just so defeating. You're like, I've been working on this, and yet I feel like the same issues keep coming up, and you keep on harping on all those things. And what this means is that Jesus actually is fair in his assessment of us. He's fair. He does see when you're growing. He really does see when currently the way that you're living is actually better than you were. And he's, he really he says, that's, that's good, and I see that. And I love that he's fair to us in his assessment. He says you need to be encouraged about that growth that I'm seeing in you. And so he says the reasons for your intolerance, are they're really my character. And then also because I want to encourage you. Because I'm the God who knows you and sees you and loves you. And I want you to respond to me by not tolerating a few things. And then he gets into the next section, the middle part of the sandwich, um, where he says there's a couple things you need to focus on here. So this section is the focus of our intolerance. The focus of our intolerance here is false teaching that promotes love without truth. Teaching that promotes love without truth. 
again, comparing it to Ephesus, right? Jesus is fair. He's saying, Ephesian church, what you're missing is you've lost your first love. You need to repent. Thyatira in church, you've lost your truth. You need to repent. More about Thyatira, what's going on there? Well, it's interesting. It's encouraging. Thyatira was not a very big city. Um, it was kind of an off-the-map kind of place. It had changed hands a lot of times. It's kind of rural. Um, of all the letters, it's kind of the one that most scholars are like, huh, that's interesting. It's kind of a bit off the grid. Um, it's encouraging because if you're in a church of 10 people, 100 people, 500 people, 1,000 people, 10,000 people, Jesus cares for you. You know, each one of these churches has an angel, which is interesting. <laughs> I'm trying to find time to get into that in a sermon, but I can't figure out how to get in there. Well, I'm going to try by, by the end of the series. But it's, it's really interesting that this church, it may have like 10 people, 50 people. It has its own angel. I mean, it just is cool that Jesus cares about small churches and not just the big mega churches, although he cares about the mega churches too. Thank God. Um, so what do we know about the church at Thyatira? Well, interestingly, Lydia in Acts 16, who was converted under the ministry of Paul, with Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer, they started the Philippian church. Lydia was from Thyatira. She was a seller of purple dye, if you remember. And she went there, and she's very much indicative of the culture in the city in Thyatira. A woman, entrepreneur, she'd grown up. She sells purple dye. She goes into a bigger city to sell her product. It's probably the fact that Lydia then converted and came back and shared the gospel, and they planted a church there. That's why there's a church at Thyatira. The city, as I said earlier, is full of temples. All the temples promised health, wealth, prosperity. If you'll just worship here, your work will go well. Business and seeking blessing. Working in the trades, worship in the temples. To be Thyatiran was to combine worship with work. Those are the two staples of society. And in this temple plus business culture, sexual immorality was not just common or condoned it was actually mixed into worship, if you can imagine this. So you're going to the temple, and there's actually temple prostitution. They're, they're actively um, participating in sexual immorality in worship. And so there's this complete conflation between worship and sex. And so what's going on here is in verse 20 and 21, the word for sexual immorality, you need to understand what it means. It's, it's pornea in the Greek. It's a broad word that includes all kinds of sexual sin in the Bible. Any kind of sexual practice that occurs outside of the context of a heterosexual marriage in the Bible is considered pornea or sexual immorality. This can include adultery, premarital sex, homosexuality, prostitution, the use of pornography. That's where we get the word pornography from. And Jesus is saying in the Bible... Uh, this is not what you are called to as Christians. Uh, you're not called to pornea. You're called to follow me. But in that context of what's going on in the church at Thyatira, in the culture of Thyatira, let's talk about what's going on to the church at Thyatira, where you have this woman called Jezebel, okay? Very likely not her name, uh, very likely um, just the name that Jesus assigns to this woman. Um, and he, he calls her Jezebel because of the type of ministry that she's having there in the church. Now, we just went through First and Second Kings. That's good. We just covered Jezebel. But let me give you a refresher if you're newer to the church or it's been that long and you can't remember. But Jezebel was the evil queen. She's one of the worst women in the Bible. She was married to Ahab. 
and she came from the town Sidon, and she, in Sidon, that was like the center of Baal worship, okay? So what did Baal promise you? Baal promised you that if you would follow him, then he would bless your, he would bless your job, he would give, he was the god of agriculture, he would, which at that time was like everybody's job, um, and he would basically make you prosperous, he would make your family thrive. If you would just worship Baal, then everything would be fine. Jezebel taught that uh, in, in this church here that, that it was something similar going on that they could apply with the gods of the day. But the crafty approach in the Old Testament with Jezebel and Baal was that their marketing team did not bring in a Baal-only approach, okay, at all. I mean, in fact, they felt like that would have been detrimental to the, to the, to the end game, right? We want as many people worshiping Baal, and so what we need is to not have a Baal-exclusive approach. Let's just have a Baal-inclusive approach so you can worship Baal and Yahweh. We're, we're the good guys. We're the tolerant people. I mean, it's, it's all good. You can worship Baal and then go to your, t- go to your Yahweh worship. And, and this was a way to just kind of expand. And what was going on in Thyatira was like, hey, it's going to be really hard if you totally leave the temple culture. That's kind of like where people hang out. That's where you kind of get your business going, right? I mean, I grew up in the Deep South where I don't know how many people in the Deep South growing up. I mean, pretty much everybody went to church when I was growing up. But for a lot of people, it was just for business reasons. Like, you move to Birmingham, Alabama, and people ask you, do you pull for Alabama or Auburn, and what church do you go to? And if you say, I don't know who I pull for in football, or you say, I don't have a church, your business is not going to go very well. You need to have an opinion. You need to go to church somewhere. And it was kind of like that with the temple culture. Like, you just had to go to temple, or else who are you going to sell your stuff to? And so this was going on, this, this conflation of, of worship and work. And, and Baal was inclusive, and yet Yahweh, as Andy put it last Sunday, I love this, Yahweh was not cool with a hybrid religion. He is exclusive. He's holy, holy, holy. He's not okay with Jesus plus something. He's Christ alone. So back to what was going on in Thyatira. So this false teacher Jezebel, likely a woman, a very influential leader, um, she was teaching that it was okay to be a Christian and to follow God, follow Jesus, and to practice both materialism and sexual immorality. She's saying, and we're getting into each of these, like, you don't need to leave those behind. She was importing that into the church and saying, Jesus is a God of grace. Jesus knows it's hard. So it's okay. It's okay to be materialistic, and it's okay to practice sexual immorality and be a Christian. Let's go through each of these. Jesus and materialism, first of all. She was frankly teaching that you could love Jesus and your money. She was saying Christ and materialism can sweetly coexist. Jesus was completely supportive of your main reason for going to church, which was so that your business would prosper. She's saying that doesn't need to change. That's okay. You can just bring that in from the temple culture. Jesus cares about your business. If she were alive today, and she is, (laughs) in updated iterations, she would teach that Jesus is like a butler that you serve him so that you can serve yourself. That Jesus is not the telos, he's not the end, he's not the goal. Jesus is a means to an end. The means to an end in worshiping Jesus is that Jesus will give you what you really want, which is money. Shai Lin, a 
great rap, rap artist, said, if you come to Jesus asking for money, then he's not your God, money is. That's a very succinct way of saying it. If you come to Jesus and your main prayer request is, bless my business and bless my, give me more money, your God is money. And your God is economic prosperity, not Jesus. And you need to, you need to deal with that. And Jesus is saying, it's really not okay with me that you would do a Jesus plus materialism. I mean, she might go on to say, Jesus wouldn't want you to be poor, would he? Following Jesus is fine, but don't take it to the extreme and hurt your financial bottom line. That can't be what Jesus wants for you. Jesus wouldn't want your net worth to shrink, would he? I think, you know, sometimes he, he might. <laughs> a love for God, in fact, means following Jesus totally. John elsewhere, he wrote Revelation in John 14, 21, said loving God is what? Loving God is obeying his commands. He says, in this way, you show that you are true disciples. The, the hard thing about materialism is that it's a hidden sin. It's, it's one of those sins that it, it just can like, I mean, people don't, I was talking to somebody the other day that said, you know, nobody walks into church with these giant gold money bags and like puts them next to them in their chair, unless they're, I guess, intending to give them. Um, but people don't do that, but yet we carry around the money bags with us where, wherever we go, a lot of us do. And so the only way you can repent of materialism is if you're honest with yourself. If you can be honest with yourself and say, yeah, this is actually something for me that's a problem, and I need to bring that to Jesus. Jesus is not okay with a Jesus plus materialism church. And then the, the second thing that Jesus is not okay with here that's going on in Thyatira is Jesus plus sexual immorality. Jezebel would also tell you that you can love Jesus plus pornea. The sexual sin and, and Jesus can coexist. What theological rationale might she walk through? Well, how about this? Jesus really isn't concerned about your behavior. He's really concerned about your heart. And as long as you invite Jesus into your heart and you ask for forgiveness for your sins, Jesus is, is less concerned about your behavior. He's, if you ultimately kind of one day make some changes to your behavior, that'll do. But for now, Jesus is just really content with your heart. Um, how about this? He's a God of love and grace, isn't he? And he knows the temptations we face are really hard. And so he gets it. So don't really worry about it too much. As long as you accept Jesus into your heart, he'll be satisfied. But Jesus couldn't disagree more with Jezebel here because he's against love without truth. Why? Because love without truth isn't love. If you go to the doctor and he says, you just have a little bit of cancer, we're not going to do anything about it. I don't think that's really what you want the doctor to do. Why? Because it's not the truth. Okay, he told you the truth, but he's not going to do anything about it. He's not going to call, call to any type of change. That's really not, that's not where we want to go. And so Jesus is, he, he loves us enough to not tolerate love without truth. Why can Jesus not tolerate this? Because of his own character. It's a violation of his own character. To combine Jesus with sexual immorality is just completely contradictory to who Jesus is. And so to show the seriousness of the warning, as Emmy read it, I'm sure you're like, wow. I mean, verse 22, Jesus says, I will throw her onto her sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her and I will throw into great tribulation, throw them into great tribulation 
unless they repent. The best way to interpret this passage is that if you don't repent of sexual immorality and you, and you, 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 you don't seek to do what you can to deal with it in your heart and to, re- to truly repent of that, and you just kind of let it fester in your life and, and you don't take it seriously, if you, if you even get to the point where you're like, Jesus is okay with my sexual immorality, then Jesus is saying that there's, for, for this woman, Jezebel and her followers, and I think to take it into today wouldn't be too much, that there are going to be some temporal, temporary, in-this-life consequences for that. I mean, Jesus loves you enough, like you think about parenting. Yeah, I love my kids, but I love them enough to, I give them consequences. Yeah, I forgive them every single time for the things that they've done, but I want to give them temporary consequences so that they'll learn that there's a problem. And then ultimately he's saying, and and I think that um, assurance of pardoning grace passage is a really good one, because it, it talks about all of these lists of things that we can be guilty of, and it says, and such were some of you, but you have been bought, you have been purchased, you have been, you have been redeemed, essentially. And I think that what, what needs to happen is that our identity has to shift from sexual morality or materialism in, in, into Christ. And then Christ, as he forgives us and reforms us, remakes that part of our lives. But we can't make a truce with sexual sin. We can't make a truce with materialism. Jesus says that's just not the Christian life that I'm calling you to live. And then he goes on in verse 23 says, and, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches minds and hearts, and I will give you give to each of you according to your works. He's saying what? He's saying according to your works. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that if you do enough work, you're going to be saved. He's saying the way that I can see whether or not you really believe me and trust me is if you're really going to follow me in your real dirt under the fingernails life. He's saying that the, the, the people who, who love me and follow me are going to do all they can to do battle and to kill sin in their life, in these two areas of money and sex in particular. So what do we do if we find ourselves living a life of Jesus plus sexual immorality or Jesus plus materialism? Well, I think we need to go through three stages, okay? The first is we need to have the stage of initial realization, okay? Whoa, this is a problem for me, okay? It's just owning it and being like, yeah, that's a problem. And I, I need to, to recognize that it's really, really not okay to live a Jesus-plus lifestyle. And then, moving on from realization, you need to get beyond remorse. Beyond remorse. Remorse is like the very first step toward repentance. But it's kind of like you're sad that you got caught, and it's going to be really hard, and you're bummed. Um, because you really think it's going to be hard to change. And, and that's just the start, but you got to get beyond remorse. Um, you know, people talk about in the Christian life, what you want to have is you want to have one foot, you want to have both feet on Jesus. A lot of times what we have is one foot on Jesus and one foot on an idol or multiple idols, and we need to have both feet on Jesus, but sometimes we get both feet on Jesus, and then we start looking back over our shoulder, like Lot's wife, at whatever it was that we liked so much in the past. And what we need to do is we need to both get both feet of faith onto Jesus following him and get our eyes fixed on Jesus as often as we can. Because the more you look back, the more you're going to lose your balance and you're going to fall back into a Jesus plus lifestyle. And beyond remorse, you need to get to true repentance. And Jesus says, it's it's a great uh, short phrase in verse 21, I gave her time to repent. I gave her time. I don't know how much time he gave her. 
but he gave her time to repent. And he's giving you time to repent too of whatever it is going on in your life. But there is, there's a time. It means that there's a, there's a time boundness to that time that we need to take seriously. How much more time will he give us before we repent, realizing our sin is a real problem? You know, repentance, true repentance, it includes vulnerability with someone else. Someone else that is actual real embodied human being that you can sit with and they can sit with you, okay? It includes that, but it goes beyond that. It, it includes new obedience. What, what that means is that you, if you're really going to repent of either one of these sins, you're going to have to start living in a different way than you are right now. How you've been living so far got you here. So if you say, I repent, and you, and you don't change anything about the way that you're living, then it just shows that you're actually not very serious about repenting because you're just going to end up where, where you are. And so new obedience means vulnerability combined with some kind of new proactivity in that area of your life that might feel really hard to do. It might feel really hard to do, but, but that's the path of following Jesus here in the areas of materialism and sexual immorality. Why does Jesus want this for us? Why does he speak truth to us? Why doesn't he just let us love our money and love our sex in a way that is, is not how he... God, God created money, or he created the world, and he knew economies would exist that would create money, and he created sex, okay? They're not bad things. But when we idolize those things and we put them into our hearts and we say, I will serve you if you will bless me, it will ruin your life. It will ruin your soul. It will ruin everything. And so Jesus loves you enough like that cancer doctor to be like, we need to do something about this or it will kill you. It will destroy you. We, we think we pursue these things, sex and money, thinking that it will give us so much, but actually what does it do? It grows this internal burden like a tumor in our lives that needs to be taken out or else it will be not good for us. So coming into the light is good and freeing, so I encourage you to come into the light. I know that for some of you this may feel threatening um, to the extent that the Holy Spirit intends it to be. I welcome that. <laughs> because I think Jesus is using some threatening terminology here in the sense of, hey, I mean business. I'm the son of God. I care about you. I'm holy, holy, holy and I want you to be free. I want you to come into the light. I want to make sure as we talk about sexual immorality that you don't just think of one particular area in your mind. I'm, I'm talking about all the areas, okay? All the areas that are outside of marriage between a man and a woman. So we need to be coming to the Lord for that. And like the verse said earlier, there is abundant grace in renewal. How do I know that? The final section, the reward for our intolerance, the benefits of clinging to Christ alone, the reward for our intolerance. The first reward is this. This is so beautiful. In verse 25, 24. To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, I, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. I love that. 
Jesus lays on you no other burden. He says, if you hold fast to me alone until I come again, I lay no other burden on you. The problem for us with idolatry is we we pursue those things thinking that we're going to get so much out of them, but they become a burden to us. You know that they do. Such a burden. But Jesus says, if you'll come to me and cling to me for grace alone, I lay no other burden on you. The only burden you have is me, is my grace for you, my love for you, my filling you up with my life. Instead of that that internal burden sucking life from your soul, you have me giving life to you in the deepest parts. Only in Christ can we find that kind of true freedom, that freedom in Christ. Freedom in Christ comes not from taking Christ and pursuing sin. Freedom in Christ comes from clinging to Christ alone. Because any other thing that we combine with Christ becomes a burden to us. And he says, I don't want to lay on you any other burden. If you have me, you'll have no other burdens. If you have burdens, you'll know how to live with them through me. The second reward for our intolerance in these certain areas is I will give him authority over the nations. Okay, so this is really cool. So this is Jesus talking about himself from the Old Testament from Psalm 2. So I just want to kind of tell you how cool that is, all right? Like, Jesus is preaching, essentially. He's writing a letter, and he's saying, there's something in the Old Testament that's about me that you need to know. It's Psalm 2. There are theologians today, there's some prominent ones that say that we should, quote, unhinge ourselves from the Old Testament. That we really just need to camp out in the New Testament. I love the New Testament, it's great. But the Old Testament is also all about Jesus, and Jesus in Psalm 2 is saying, hey, I am that king in Psalm 2 who is going to be ruling with righteousness and freedom over the nations, and if you're with me, you also get to participate in that kingdom of holiness and righteousness and freedom. Ultimately, Jesus will break down all the falsehoods of Baal, Zeus, Apollo, sexual morality, materialism, he'll break it all down and there will be a righteous world where there will be no other burdens except for having Jesus with us forever. And somehow, interestingly, we, we participate in that rule. We're not just in the kingdom, but we're helping him, which I find cool. I don't have time to get into that. Um, and then the final thing, the final reward is I will give him the morning star. What is the morning star? Who is the morning star? Well, Revelation 22 Near the very end of the book, one of the last things Jesus says in the whole book is, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. So the best way to interpret this is Jesus is the morning star. And so when you, at the end, what do you get? What do you get in the very end? You get Jesus. It's who you had at the beginning. Why is that so great? Because he lays no other burden on you. Because he can actually satisfy your souls. Because he's the true king. The morning star is this picture of this transcendent, eternal reality. He is that. He is the king of kings, our heart's desire. So if we hold fast to him, we get the gospel, no other burden. We live, we get to live in a righteous kingdom where all the sin and death and materialism and pornea will be gone. And we have him, the glory our hearts have longed for. So I want to be really clear with you 
today about what you need to do. I, I, you know, the salvation is found in Jesus. And if today you feel really convicted about something going on in your life, I would just encourage you to unload that onto Jesus Christ. I mean, the burdens that we carry, it could be something different than materialism and sexual immorality. That's what we've talked about this morning. But whatever is burdening you that you feel like you know the Holy Spirit is saying, this is out of accord in my life with the character of Christ. And it's very clear to me. It's not this vague idea. It's, it's something very clear. I would just encourage you to, to run to Christ and give that to him. If you've never trusted Christ ever before, then I encourage you to trust him. I encourage you to trust him and, and receive salvation because he, he can forgive you. He does forgive you through his death on the cross for all of your sins if you'll come to him and you'll ask for forgiveness. But if you've, if you've come to him before and you're a Christian and you're convicted and you know that your life is kind of out of court in these areas, I just would encourage you to please not delay. Please don't delay. I have friends who have delayed. Okay, I have friends who have delayed. And the downstream impact of not being serious about following Jesus is really, really serious. It's really serious. And so I encourage you to unload. I encourage you to get help. Don't just unload it onto Jesus. Unload it onto a friend. Ask for help. Ask for, ask for some accountability. Ask for some encouragement. You can talk to me about it. You can talk to any elder. You can talk to anybody who's leading your community group or anybody that you know well. But talk to somebody. You know, our Western culture tells us that tolerance is the highest value. But it's not. Jesus is. And so I encourage you to hold on to Jesus. And as he sees you and he loves you and he encourages you, I just encourage you to run to him. Run to him for salvation. Run to him for forgiveness. Run to him and experience true freedom. Let's hold fast to him until he comes again. He lays no other burden on us. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would be so present with us in this time. I know that I've been walking on some um, sacred places, some places that are hard for us to know how to get disentangled from in our lives. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that as we come to you. And Lord, I thank you that you, Holy Spirit, are a God who brings healing and wholeness and freedom. And I pray that as we come to you, that you would assure us again of your encouraging grace, that you, you do not cast us aside, that you love us and you want what's best for us, that you do not love us in a way that sacrifices truth, but you love us in a way that incorporates it, and it's for our good, even if it's hard. So, Lord, I pray that this would be a time of true repentance and that we would let go of any idols that are keeping us from following you, and I pray that we would follow you wholeheartedly and we'd make repentance a lifestyle for us, that we'd live the Jesus plus repentance lifestyle and no other lifestyle. In Jesus' name. Amen.